Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. And if you will, you stand with me right now. Good morning, everybody. If you're uh, able, please stand out of respect for God's Word. If you are not, put your heart and a mind in a place of submission under God's Word. And uh, we're going to begin today by reading Paul's letter to the Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verse 15 beautiful passage here. Just just soak this in this morning. Paul writes, we look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything. Everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets this message. I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. That was the message paraphrased today by Eugene Peterson, by the way. I just think he gets that passage so right. Uh, so uh, Festo Kivenjir is remembered today as Africa's apostle of love for the way that he ministered in Uganda. But Festo wasn't born into a Christian home, uh, for the record. He was born in 1919 in a uh, beehive-shaped hut made of grass to the Barbaro tribe, one of the most powerful people in southwest Uganda. Now, when he's pretty young, missionaries moved into the village. They began to talk about Jesus, and uh, one of the missionaries taught him how to read, which enabled him to go to college. 
And when he came back from college, though he was not yet a Christian, he was amazed to see how the gospel had spread. Revival had sparked like wildfire in his, uh, wildfire in his community. Everybody was like believing in Jesus. Like these Christians could not, they would not shut up about the forgiveness of Jesus. It actually annoyed Festo uh, to no end. But there was one thing about the Christians that impressed him. Uh, he noticed that when somebody converted to Christianity, they became fanatical about confession and forgiveness. They just went around confessing their sins, trying to make peace with others, and then forgiving others for the wrongs that they have done them. And that was a little bit disorienting to Festo because, well, the religious people that he knew didn't confess and forgive. They were self-righteous and judgmental. So, for example, uh, one day, the chief, who was his uncle, I was sitting on his porch, and a wealthy cattle farmer came with eight cows and just gave, him, uh, gave them to the chief. Now, the chief was like, okay, what's... What's going on here? What are you giving these cows to me for? And the cattle farmer explained uh, that many years ago he had stolen four cows from him. And since then, those four cows had had four calves, and these were the chief's property. So he wanted to give them back. Well, the chief was obviously surprised, as you probably would have been. So he said, Who made you do this? And the cattle farmer responded, Jesus did. You can beat me or throw me into prison if you need to, but I had to make peace with you. Will you forgive me? Now, I love this. A couple days later, the chief was recounting this story to Festo and many other stories of confession that were happening in the community. And this is what he said to his nephew. The chief said, I must admit, some great power is at work here. And indeed it was. This was the first of many instances that Festo ran into of confession and forgiveness. One of his friends returned 200 uh, shillings that he had cheated a Muslim shopkeeper from. Why, he was asked? Well, because Jesus changed my life. Will you forgive me? Another one of his friends was a construction worker who returned a shovel that he had stolen from the construction boss. The construction boss asked why. Well, he said, because I, I was arrested. Arrested by who? Arrested by Jesus. Will you forgive me? Uh, one night, Festo just kind of like had enough. He's like, I gotta go figure out what these Christians are about. So he actually goes to church. And while he's at church, the church sort of lays hands on him and prays over him to receive Jesus. And it didn't work. In fact, Festo got angry about this, and after he left the church, he went out that night and he got drunk because he thought it was the quickest way he could put God out of his mind. But then on his way home, stumbling back to his house, one of his friends found him and said, Festo, you'll never believe it. Three hours ago, I gave my life to Jesus. And I have three things that I need to confess to you. And he confessed three ways that he had harmed Festo, asked him for his forgiveness. Festo couldn't escape it. And at the end of the day, he didn't want to escape it. There was something beautiful about this God of forgiveness and this people who confessed. So he gave his heart to Jesus. And then he went about doing his own confessing and his own forgiving. And eventually, over time, he became a leader of the Ugandan church, an Anglican bishop there. 
In fact, he led and he preached in the 1970s and 1980s during the bloody, revel, uh, the, the, the bloody uh, violence that happened in Uganda. If, uh, if you have ever heard of him, Adi Amin was the evil dictator there during the time. I believe we have a picture of him. And Amin was responsible for killing up to 300,000 Ugandans. One of the people that he killed was one of Festo's closest friends, a fellow Anglican bishop who was preaching against his injustice. Now, Festo found out that Amin had his sights set on taking Festo out next. So he fled the country. But while he was out of, this country, uh, out of the country, he wrote this book. You can see the title. <laughs> the title is I Love Adi Amin. He explained, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And as evil as Adi Amin was, how can I do less towards him? And wow. I must admit, some great power was at work there. Now, today we are in week two of a sermon series we launched uh, last week. Um, it's a sermon series that will be going through Lent up into Easter on the realities of sin in our life and God's grace offered to us in Jesus. Nerd alert, if y'all remember, uh, last week we sort of laid out a theological map for you. I got the grid for you again. We're again, we're in kind of row two of the series. Each week, our hope is to look at a different sphere of human life and how sin impacts that. And then what Jesus does about it, his work, the result of it, hitting on some important passages along the way, like today, Colossians uh, chapter one. Now, I'll go ahead and say this, and I said it last week, trigger warning. Anytime we talk about sin in our lives and the realities of that and God's grace and how beautiful and sufficient that it is, it happens every time people, oftentimes many people, feel compelled to respond. Perhaps you, over the course of the series, will feel compelled to respond. It's like, I don't know what it is, but I see the realities of sin in my life and I want to give it to Jesus or I've tried leading my own life and I feel like this Jesus way may be better for me. I don't know. If at any point in time, though, you feel this compulsion in your life to give it over to Jesus like for the first time or for the first time in a long time. I don't care. I want to encourage you to do it. This is the season in the church calendar where traditionally we challenge folks to consider walking in new life in him. It's moving towards Easter after all. So do it. On April 24th, the weekend after Easter, we're going to have a baptism Sunday where anyone in this series who decides, I want to give it over to Jesus. We had Somewhere between five to 10 people last week, I, could, I didn't get the last number. Last week, you said, I want to get baptized, which is amazing. And I would love to see many more who see this as their time to do it as well. So you can see on the bottom of the screen up there, at any point in time, if you're like, I, I want to get baptized, I want to have that conversation, text us. There's a pastor on the other end of the line. We would love to talk with you. Or after the service, just go to the fireplace out there. Go to the fireside room, and we'll have a pastor out there ready to talk with you. But we would love to talk with you about that decision. Now, today, again, week two. Here in week two, we're going to look at the realm of our relationships. Uh, picking up where we left off last week, one of the initial fallouts of sin is what I would call relational alienation. Relational alienation. And I believe that we experience, as human beings, alienation in four relationships or on four levels immediately when sin is introduced. This is what Genesis 3 tells us. First, 
we experience disorientation with creation. You see in Genesis chapter 3, 15 through 24, that there are thorns, toil, and banishment from the garden. And I don't know, you ever feel like things like a global pandemic or a tornado that just takes out an entire town? Is it supposed to be a part of God's beautiful creation? Ever feel like mosquitoes are not supposed, I mean, like, I don't know how that involves this curse of sin, but we'll find it out someday because it's clearly evidence of the curse of sin. There's a disorientation between us and God's good created world. Second level, they experience this sort of alienation is in their relationship with themselves, themselves. Self-view, if you will, or, or, or self-worth. Genesis 3, verse 7, you see the couple immediately feel shame, realizing that they're naked. And this topic is so important and so deeply ingrained in so much of us. Shame is so deeply ingrained in so much of us that this is getting its own week in the series later on. But ha- you ever feel unworthy? You ever wonder if God's truly sufficient, his grace is truly sufficient to save you? It's part of the fallout of sin. Third level of relational uh, alienation is our relationship with others, which is what we're going to hit on this week. Genesis 3, 10 through 13, we, experience, uh, we see that Adam and Eve experience alienation with each other immediately. They start blaming each other. There's pain, there's sorrow, and so on and so forth. And I don't know, you ever felt the stinging pain of broken relationships? You ever had a failed marriage? Ever been estranged from one of your children? Maybe you have a father wound or a mother wound from your childhood. Has anyone ever betrayed you like a close friend? Lied about you? Or maybe there's just this person, this group of people that you hate. You just hate them because of what they do to you or how they've hurt people around you. All this is a byproduct of sin in the world. And all of this our alienation with others, our estrangement with ourselves, and the disorientation we feel from creation, all of this stems from the ultimate separation that sin causes, which is the fourth level they experience in the garden, our separation with God himself. You see in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, that a disordered relationship with God leads to disorientation with, with creation. They sense separation they hide from God, you know, they hide from God in fear of how he might respond. I don't know, you ever feel like sometimes God can be so close but so far away? It's the fallout of sin. Now, what's the solution? Well, for those of us uh, who, who are reading the, the New Testament, the solution boils down to one word, and I got an equation for you. It's the word, uh, it's a $2 theology word here for you called reconciliation, reconciliation. If I had to define reconciliation for you, I would do it like this. Reconciliation is confession plus forgiveness in Jesus. It's as simple as that. You wanna be reconciled horizontally with others you got beef with. You wanna be reconciled vertically with God because of the separation that's there. There's two key parts to it, confession plus forgiveness in the context of Christ. And I'm gonna tell you what, we need reconciliation, vertically, but also horizontally in the United States of America today. Do we not? But we're not very good at it. Uh, Several years ago in the Huffington Post, they published an apology note written by a little kid named Zach to one of his friends. And I just love kids. And I thought it was so on point for the message today that I wanna read it to you. Actually, we actually have a picture of it. You can throw the picture up? Yeah, let's just read it here. 
Uh, Zach writes, I'm sorry, Ben. I didn't mean to hurt you. I feel like crap. I love you. And I was trying to hit Chris. I hate Chris. I hate my choice I made. I really hope you accept my apology. When I threw the scissors, I was aiming for Chris. I hope you start to feel better soon. And you can see he drew his little scale of love and hate there on the bottom. Ben in the love zone, Chris in the hate. That's incredible. Now, uh, we laugh at that, but chances are you got a little Zach in you. And for many of us, we're about that good at reconciliation. But uh, every once in a while, we see an example shine forth on the public stage that just grabs our heart and shows us what it's all about. I remember June 2015, Charleston, South Carolina, the Emmanuel AME Church, historically black church. Dylan Roof, 21-year-old white supremacist, uh, walked into the church during a prayer meeting, was accepted with open arms, and how did he return their hospitality He pulled out a gun and shot and killed nine of our brothers and sisters in Jesus during a prayer meeting. Now, what happened next, though, was nothing short of stunning. Breathtaking. I still remember watching this on the television because the families of the victims in court on national TV forgave Dylan Roof. I forgive you, Nadine Collier said through tears to the accused killer of her mother, Ethel Lance. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you and I forgive you. Next came Anthony Thompson, husband of Myra Thompson. He began by addressing the court rather than his wife's accused killer. I would just like him to know that to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive him and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent. The husband then spoke directly to Dylan Roof who was watching and listening via video connection from jail. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change you and change your ways. Stunning. Mr. Thompson's wife had not yet been buried and he was already offering her killer Eternal salvation in Jesus. What would you do? I must admit, some great power was at work there. Now, shortly after a Washington Post piece, uh, was an opinion piece, uh, actually questioned the family's act of forgiveness. Stacy Patton wrote, The parade of forgiveness is disconcerting to say the least. The almost reflexive demand of forgiveness, especially for those dealing with death by racism, is about protecting whiteness and America as a whole. 
Uh, now, the title of her article uh, was Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. I read the article. Patton goes on to make some profound points about justice. But stop forgiving? Stop? I didn't know that was an option for the Jesus follower. See, I believe that the spirit of this article is one that honestly pervades most of our cultural conversations today. It's a spirit that goes beyond a righteous thirst for justice. It's a spirit that goes beyond it and and feels more like vindictive unforgiveness. And it has inflamed us on every social issue we talk about. It's not just a race thing, y'all. This this has inflamed us when it comes to masks, inflamed us when it comes to COVID-19 or vaccines, censorship, like fill in the blank, anything that has to do with sexuality. Our culture today scoffs at the idea of grace. It's almost as if people don't believe that justice and forgiveness can exist in the same space, that somehow they're mutually exclusive. They're not. Uh, In a study released in June 2020 by James Gibson, he's uh, part of the polyscience department at Washington University, and Joseph Sutherland, two Ivy League degrees, um, they found the following. They found that self-censorship has more than tripled in over a generation. Uh, They found that approximately 40% of Americans are choosing to, and I quote, keep their mouths shut rather than express their opinions nowadays. Gibson goes on to explain it in this way. He says, because people so dislike each other and detest each other's views and values, they perceive a great cost associated with sharing their opinions in public. Worry that expressing unpopular views will isolate and alienate people from their friends, family, and neighbors seems to drive self-censorship. Free speech has never been free, but the cost of such speech today has skyrocketed. Anyone feel that? As a pastor who stands on stage and talks every week, I feel that. (laughs) Now, look, I understand why our culture operates in this way. I do. I don't hold it against him. I don't expect people who aren't Christian to to be Christian. Back to our equation. As Christians, when we feel alienation, if we're like burying our heart and our minds in Scripture, then our immediate response is reconciliation. Confession plus forgiveness in Christ, right? We consider reconciliation a high virtue. But that's just not a high virtue for our culture. So why would we expect this from? The the high virtues of our culture are things like self-actualization and self-autonomy and identity demand and acceptance. Power, if you will. And if those are the things that you believe are key to living a happy and fulfilled life, then confession and forgiveness ain't gonna be a part of the equation. See, forgiveness is actually a renunciation of power. It's actually looking to somebody who's indebted to you and saying, I'll I'll bear the debt. I forgive you of the debt. Forgiveness is prioritizing the rebuilding of community over self-autonomy. Say, I want these relational bonds to be mended more than I want to hold this over you. And confession, confession actually sees at least certain types of self-deprecation as self-actualization. It's the key to holiness, 
Because confession is a humble admission that you've done wrong and are a work in progress. Rather than a non-negotiable demand that you get to make your own truth and everybody's got to you know, shape their lives around it. This is why cancel culture, by the way, is hot in our society today. Because it's a really, really easy way for you to just nullify, abolish the opposition. Anybody who pushes back on you, anybody who, who like, you know, doesn't, doesn't agree with the way you see things or what your definition of the good life is, just cancel them, destroy them, get rid of them. And I, can get, I get why our culture operates like that. I do. But I have no idea why a Christian would ever operate like that. Like, why don't we see confession as the go-to strategy? Why don't we see forgiveness as something we should be eager to do? Why don't we see reconciliation as actually one of the high virtues that we're called to and the key to formation, the key to evangelism, the key to witness, the actual key to justice in God's terms at least? Need I remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, So if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Everything old's passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You are a minister of reconciliation in Christ, y'all. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Back to Charleston and Emmanuel AME. Barbara Reynolds, a civil rights leader who marched with MLK and others, also wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post, 2015. This is what she wrote. She said, trained in the tradition of MLK Jr., we were nonviolent activists who won hearts by conveying respectability and changed laws by delivering a message of love and unity. The ethics of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation that empowered black leaders such as King and Mandela in their successful quests to win over their oppressors are missing today. The power of the spiritual approach, the spiritual approach, I love that, was evident recently in the way relatives of the nine victims in the Charleston church shooting responded. I must admit some great power is at work there. Now, I'm pretty sure it's a well-established uh, understanding here that I like the Amish. I love the Amish. I love their honey. There's this farmer's market in Lexington where my uncle gets honey and he'll send it up. It's just, I mean, really nice, Clark. It's good. It's so good. Um, <laughs> But I also, on many levels, like their theology. I do. Because I believe they have a theology that allows them to build their community around the idea of reconciliation. Let me explain to you. So uh, you do know that the reason why the Amish resist tech... Okay, the Amish don't resist technology absolutely. You know that, right? There are different communities that are more or less conservative, but like... There's often technologies that they'll accept. There are Amish communities with electricity. 
There are Amish communities that have uh, high-tech farming equipment. Amish communities with voicemails and websites. I kid you not. See, the thing is, that not they resist it, absolutely. But rather, they're more thoughtful about technology before they accept it. Do you know that they actually gather together as a community anytime they're thinking about accepting new technology in, and they just discuss it. They, they spend time together in thoughtful discernment, trying to figure out exactly how this might impact the community. So uh, Donald Crable, he's a professor at Elizabeth Down uh, College, co-author of a book called The Amish, wrote this. He says, they're just more cautious, more suspicious, wondering, is this going to be helpful or is it going to be detrimental? Or I love this. He says, wondering, is it going to bolster our life together as a community or is it going to somehow tear it down? Now, uh, translation, basically they ask, will this make us more or less reliant on one another? And in our culture today, that's just, it just doesn't compute for us. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, that's a virtue. I'm a self-made man, my body, my rights, don't tread on me, okay? I, I make my own breaks here. I find my truth, you find your truth, stay out of my business. But not so with the Amish. The Amish actually believe as Christians that we need each other, so they build their community in such a way that they have to rely on one another. It's really pretty beautiful. This is why, by the way, when it comes to forgiveness, disciples of our culture see it as just useless or, or even a weakness. Why would I waste time forgiving someone when I can hold it over them? Why, why would I waste energy equalizing a debt someone owes me when I can be in a power position over them. But again, this is not how the Christians operate. This is not how the Amish operate. They see forgiveness as essential and far more important to community life than social media or Netflix or smartphones for that matter. Read this story recently, was reminded of it. You probably remember it. Exhibit A, in October 2006, a gunman took hostages in a one-room Amish schoolhouse, Pennsylvania. He shot 10 children, ages 7 to 13. Five died. And then he took his own life. But within hours, hours, members of the Amish community visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents, expressing sympathy for their loss. The Amish uniformly offered forgiveness to the murderer and his family. The forgiveness and love shown towards the shooter and his family amazed many people. But for the Amish, it was just the logical conclusion. At the heart of their faith was a man dying for his enemies and forgiving them with his final breath. And as recipients of Jesus' forgiveness and followers of Jesus' way, they saw forgiveness of enemy as the highest virtue anyone might obtain to. Stunning. I must admit, some great power is at work there. Now, from where does such power come from? How do we receive this into our lives and have that same sort of energy, if you will, willpower to reconcile? Well, this is where Colossians chapter 1 comes in. Uh, so many scholars believe that Colossians chapter 1 is, uh, is a worship hymn, a very early worship hymn of the church. If you like see it in your Bibles, 
Most Bibles have an indented in, kind of weird and chopped up in different lines. And the reason why is because it's supposed to be like a song or something that they would recite together, like, like a, a poetic verse, if you will. Beautiful. And apparently, apparently the first earliest Christians had a very high view of Jesus because the Christology in Colossians 1 is just top shelf. Apparently they thought this carpenter from Nazareth who was poor and died a criminal crucified on the cross was kind of a big deal. Shall we read it again? Colossians 1.15, again, message paraphrase. Uh, this is what it says. It says, we look at the sun and see the God who cannot uh, be seen. Amazing. We look at the sun and see God's original purpose in everything created for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. And not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. All because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Now, quick pause here. I've got this phrase highlighted for you in the text. And the reason why is because underneath this is the Greek idea reconciliation. It's really in your translation. It probably says reconciliation unless you're using uh, the message. Reconciliation 2,000 years ago when this was written means basically the same thing that it does today. It's when two parties have a dispute, they bring a third party mediator in and they mediate the dispute between the two parties. Simple as that. So Paul's idea here is that there's a pretty big dispute between God and humanity and Jesus comes in as the third party mediator and says, I'll mediate the dispute. Back to the text. This is literally what it says. It says, you yourselves are a case study of this. Your case study. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ, and, and here's the word reconciliation again. I've got it highlighted. Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together. He reconciled you whole and holy in his presence. Now, if that is in fact true, which I believe it is, what a story! What a story. The son raises his hand to mediate on my behalf and yours. And he's the best sort of mediator to mediate between us and God because he's the only being who is both fully human and fully God. He is the visible image of the invisible God, but also the author and perfecter of what it means to be human. He's the creative genius behind the spiritual and material realm, eternal in nature, the hands that hold our lives and world together even in this moment. Colossians says he's the progenitor and head of the church, supreme over time, risen and victorious over the dead. He's the wisdom that captivates us behind anything true or inspiring and the beauty that enchants us behind anything aesthetic or artistic. He is the builder of this universe and the rebuilder of all the dislocated pieces of the universe, but also, he is the only begotten son. 
And so he has the rights and authority of the Father, the power to offer inheritance, and to you and I, he does. It is he, this one, who raises his hands and says, I'll mediate on your behalf. But the unique twist here is that he offers himself to satisfy the terms. And so he volunteers to be born to a teenage girl who lives in a world that, by the way, has totally alienated her. Bottom of the social stepladder, socially disenfranchised, and yet God sees her. Jesus comes into her. God calls her blessed and uses this teenager to bear and raise Jesus himself. And I wonder today, are there any teenagers who are in this room right now who already feel invisible to the world or to the adults in your life? They're tired of being called the next generation. And someday you'll change the future. Here's the deal. Hey, here's a story that Jesus tells. He wants to live in you. He wants to live through you. If just like Mary, you'll say, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to his word. Then Jesus goes out of his way and he travels to one of the most damnable parts of the world, at least in the eyes of the Jews, Samaria, to have a conversation with the most hated woman in her village, to meet with this unimportant sexual deviant, five times remarried, reputation ruined, shameful, but he says to the Samaritan woman, I'm the living water, come and drink. And I wonder today, are there any Samaritan women in here? Any sexual sinners, any failed marriages, and you're to blame? Any social outcasts who have done your share to earn it? Jesus says, come and drink the water. Find life. Then he travels across the sea. It's one of my favorites. And he goes to a graveyard to find a man who lives there who has literally gone crazy. He's cutting himself, engaging in self-harm, a victim of spiritual warfare. His soul is so ravaged by evil, he's given up, written off by everyone as a hopeless cause. But Jesus sets him free and then sends him back into the village as a testimony of mercy. They're like, holy cow, something's come over you and it's not what it used to be. And I wonder today, is there anyone in here who feels like their lives have been ravaged by evil, like the devil has had his targets on your back, sent his very worst at you. You've got no breaks in life. You've all but given up. So disoriented with yourself that you're ready to do yourself harm or you have done yourself harm before. Look, the son wants to set you free and make you into a testimony of his mercy. Then there's the time he appears in the sky risen, to a fundamentalist preacher named Saul, who's ready to fight the culture war, who's eaten up with hate, seared with self-righteousness, inflamed with zeal, and yet he says to Saul, time for you to change, Paul. You will be an instrument for my kingdom. And I wonder today, are there any Sauls in here? Any recovering fundamentalists? Anyone who's allowed your political zeal to go too far or your self-righteous rage to burn down relationships? Anyone haunted by the violence that you've done to others? Hey, Jesus loves you. He wants you to change teams and he wants to use you as his instrument. This is good news. Oh, here's one of my favorites. Once Jesus walks over to tax collector booth of a traitor who betrayed his people full of greed hated by every Jew in town, unclean, and yet he smiles and says, Matthew, follow me. 
follow me. And I wonder today, are there any Matthews in here? Anyone who's guilty of betraying the people you love? Anyone just eaten up with money and greed and it's like destroyed your relationships? Anyone who's been kicked out of their church or religious community for what they've done? If that's you, you need to know that Jesus still wants you and he's beckoning you to follow today. One more. After this, Jesus goes and finds his other betrayer, Peter. There's two betrayers. There was two betrayers the last 24 hours of his life, Judas and Peter. Peter's the man who denied him three times. The one who publicly said all the right things, but was eventually exposed. And yet three times Jesus offers forgiveness to Peter, commissions Peter to go feed the sheep. And I wonder, are there any Peters in here today who have lived publicly Christian lives? Everyone assumed you're like Jesus' best friend, but then you got exposed. Your family found out, or maybe even the whole world found out who you really are, and you have fallen from grace. Hey, the risen Savior forgives you. He forgives you. And he wants to anoint you into his priesthood as a kingdom priest, use you as a stone in the temple that he is building, a rock upon which the church grows. It's good news. Isn't this what's so beautiful about the church? The fact of being reconciled to Jesus, when you are, you're actually incorporated in to a new family full of people who have experienced the same life-saving, life-giving forgiveness that you have. And it just bonds you. You now got a family. It's the Jesus people, the family of God. You got a squad that you can look out to and a squad that you can count on. It's amazing. In Mark chapter 10, after the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, uh, Peter kind of freaks out. He's like, if this guy can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus like, chill, Peter, chill. Because Any, anybody, this is what he says to him, anyone who gives up houses or family, anyone who sacrifices big for me in this life will get a hundred times back. And what we expect Jesus to say is in the next life, right? In the next life. But he doesn't say that. He says, they'll get a hundred times back in this life. To which you're kind of like, well, how's that even possible? Is this like one of them health, wealth, prosperity things? Like I put a dollar in the plate and get a hundred back. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Rather, he's talking about the relational wealth that we receive in Christ when we step into reconciled community. Like look around. You've got hundreds of people who got you. You've got billions of people on the planet Earth today who got you. In fact, I would suggest to you today that you have more in common if you are in fact in Christ with the Christian in Russia, Iran, China, fill in whatever blank you want to, than the non-Christian who shares your political affiliation in America today. Because of Jesus, because of the ministry of reconciliation he offers and then brings us into. You know what you get in this community? You get the sister that you never had growing up. You get the brother that you never had growing up. You get the mother or the father spiritually. Look around that you never had growing up. You get the crazy uncle that you never wanted to. And I'm not going to point him out in here, but he's in here. I just said, like, but, but you see the beauty of it? You get the multicultural perspective that you never had growing up. You get the wise truth and accountability that you never had growing up. You get loving affirmation. That last 10% speaking friend. 
a financial security net. Oh, and a strong army of people with strong shoulders ready to bear whatever burden life throws at your way. A hundred times more indeed, Jesus. A hundred times more indeed, and some. But look, I don't want to romanticize this. I don't. Like the church has got its, its flaws. This church, believe it or not, is full of sinners. Like 99% of the people in this room. We've, we've all got our, but, but isn't that what unites us? The fact that we all know we get a lot wrong, but the one thing we get right together is Jesus. So, so look, here's the catch though. Here's the catch. For 2,000 years, Christians have always believed that the point of incorporation, the point of initiation into this family is through baptism. It's this amazing moment where you say, I surrender. You ask God to give to you what only he can give on his terms. You're dunked into the water. You die to your old self symbolically. You're risen up out of the water. You rise to walk again a new life and you're welcomed in to the new family. If you have ever considered taking that step before, I wanna offer that as an invitation to you today. The text line is on the screen. Look, mediation, mediation only works if both parties agree to the terms, right? Good news. God's agreed. Jesus has died, risen, and reconciled. Now it's your move. It's your move. Paul says it like this. He says, you don't walk away from a gift like that. You don't. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. So I pray you don't walk away from the gift. Because I tell you what, I must admit some great power is at work in this Jesus. Some great power.